Welcome to the Flight Safety Detectives. Hosts John Golia and Greg Fife, two of the world's most respected aviation safety experts, talk all things related to aviation and aerospace. This podcast and the Flight Safety Detectives YouTube channel are brought to you by the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, PAMA, and Avemco Insurance, a world-class provider of aviation insurance and your one-stop for all general aviation insurance needs. Get a customized quote at avemco.com or give them a call at 888-879-0389. Tell them you're a listener of the show and receive a 5% discount. Now it's time to buckle up because it's wheels up for the latest episode of Flight Safety Detectives. Well, hello, John. It's good to see you for another episode of Flight Safety Detectives. It's, uh, it's a little balmy here in Colorado today. It's about three degrees and uh, snowing. But then again, it's just because uh, we had to be humbled from our 60 degree weekend weather. But I know that you're in a place that's even balmier. Yeah, it is a little bit balmier. It's not out and out hot. It makes 80 sometimes. Uh, but it's comfortable and it's uh, enjoyable. Well, good, good. Well, you know, a couple things before we get started um, into, uh, into dissecting an accident. Um, we received an email about one of our uh, recent shows and uh, the listener really likes the show, but took exception to some of the things we talked about with regard to unruly passengers and the fact that uh, they don't want to wear masks. And of course, it's creating a lot of consternation as well as uh, big issues, not only with flight attendants, you know, we're talking about passenger rage and he took exception. The problem is, John, as I read his email and I appreciate the feedback as you do, uh, the problem is, is that you gotta listen to what we're actually saying. Um, he thought that uh, we were supporting um, this cancel culture and not holding people politically accountable and not listening to the science and, and expressing an opinion. And we didn't do that at all. We were talking about the fact that passenger rage on airplanes has escalated since uh, COVID started. And the fact that, hey, look, you know, this isn't a federal regulation per se on, uh, on aircraft and in airports and in transportation, but it is a federal order that is backed by the force of law. So it is enforceable. And you will pay a price if you choose not to wear a mask uh, or properly abide by that order in an airport or on airplanes. And all we were talking about was the fact that, look, I travel all the time, just about every week as you do. And as much as I don't like wearing a mask, it is what it is. And it's part of right now, our travel, at least my travel culture. I just put up with it. I deal with it. I do it, you know, and it'll be over but uh, I don't support it. I don't talk about the science with it. Uh, and, ne and neither did you on, uh, on that particular show, but we do appreciate the feedback and we just want, uh, we will be doing a show as a matter of fact, coming up in the next uh, couple of weeks where we will talk some science because you and I, John, along with, uh, with our friend of the show, buddy and my doctor buddy, uh, Dr. Joe Kravitz, uh, we're going to be talking about how the masks, other than the fact that people don't like wearing them, but how they actually contribute possibly to this passenger rage. 
yeah, it's, you know, I don't want to wear a mask either. And they're hot. And, uh, but that's what it is. If you, you want to travel, you wear the mask. Uh, I don't want to be in a tube either with a lot of sick people. That's right. right? So it's, uh, and I, I don't have the science. I don't have the ability to do all the measurements and the air quality inside the airplane. So the safest thing to do is to wear the mask, keep it on all the time until we get past this. Uh, there are some indications that we may be getting close to the, to a pause at least in this for the summer. And, and maybe we can get a break and maybe we'll catch it up. But yeah, I don't, I don't like wearing a mask. It's very confining, especially if you're going any long distances and I've gone a few long flights. I mean, I've had that mask on recently for over eight hours. And uh, I mean, that's a pain. Yeah, and, and it's really, I know, a pain for you because you are a hugger and a kisser when it comes to greeting people, especially women. And that mask really inhibits your ability to give them the proper greeting. That's true. Part of my Italian culture. That's right. We kiss men and women. Yep, absolutely. I know. I'm getting tired of you kissing me. So, but anyway, um, and it was a busy week uh, for a couple of aircraft accidents. We had actually two high visibility helicopter accidents on each end of the country, one down in Miami, uh, near you, as a matter of fact. And then uh, we lost About a mile away. Yeah. Yep. What uh, what what have you been hearing down there about the uh, the helicopter that crashed in South Beach? It went pretty quiet, other than initially they were saying that he had a failure and he auto rotated. And the uh, video that was floating around on TV here uh, clearly indicated that he was auto rotating. So, and he did a pretty good job of putting it down. And all three of them walked away. Uh, with uh, two of them, the two passengers had some injuries. They took them to the hospital, but they were not critical. Uh, and the pilot essentially walked away with minor bruises. He was able to get it close to the beach, so swimming wasn't an issue. Uh, and the rescue uh, from the shore was relatively quickly. So uh, and, that, that was a good outcome on that one. And then, uh, of course, we lost the police helicopter um, in California. Unfortunately, uh, one trooper died. Um, we're still waiting to hear, but that was a... Uh, an MD-500 uh, NOTAR, that is, it doesn't have a tail rotor, it uses ducted air for the anti-torque system. And I've investigated a number of those types of accidents and, and there have been issues with that NOTAR. So it'll be, be interesting to see if there was in fact a mechanical malfunction or failure that contributed. Um, the accident occurred, I believe, um, early evening hours. So that always makes it a little more difficult for a pilot if uh, they are having to to perform an emergency uh, landing and things like that. So um, it's, uh, it's unfortunate that we had those two accidents occur, but they uh, unfortunately they turned into high visibility type accidents just because of their location. So we'll be monitoring those. And as we get more information, of course, we'll be passing it on and eventually probably talking about it on the show. But uh, for now, we're gonna be dissecting an accident from our segment called, Really? Was it worth it? And this involves an accident in, uh, that had a uh, Cirrus SR-20 being flown by a pilot and carrying two passengers. Actually, the, it was a family relation on, uh, on that aircraft, a female pilot with her husband and uh, brother-in-law. They were going from Norman, Oklahoma 
down to the Houston area um, for a family visit with a sick relative. And in looking at some of the history of this pilot and her flying and, and her total amount of time, um, she had a little over 300 hours. She's flying an SR-20. Apparently she had done a lot of training because she had accumulated a lot of time in the SR-20 aircraft. And it's a technically advanced aircraft. So it does have um, a lot of gee whiz stuff in there. Of course, the autopilot and, um, and, and that kind of thing. So of course, you know, as a low time pilot and you're flying straight and level, the autopilot and the automation helps you out. But she's going into Houston Hobby Airport. And if you've never been experienced in flying into a high density, that is a high traffic volume airport like Houston Hobby, because Southwest Airlines has airplanes landing there about every five minutes. And so if you've never flowed into an environment like that, it can be not only confusing, but very overwhelming, especially as a single pilot in an airplane like the SR-20, because it is fast, it's slick, and, and you have to stay four miles ahead of that aircraft. And just looking at the facts, conditions, and circumstances that the board put out um, in reading the report, as this pilot was getting into the area, of course, the, the beginning of this flight was uneventful, nothing really exciting. But as uh, she entered into the Houston area and was being flowed or vectored into the flow of traffic, and the traffic being 737s and a 747, um, they're trying to mix her in. Of course, she's used to flying the, the approach segments in that airplane at between 80 and 90 knots. Well, you, you're not going to find a 737 or a 747 flowing in at 80 or 90 knots either. And of course, the air traffic controllers were trying to accommodate her and flow her in. They had put her on a final approach course, but a 737 uh, was overtaking her by 80 knots. So uh, he, she ended up abandoning that first approach going into runway 19 at, uh, at Houston Hobby. The weather was VFR, so they had her maneuver in the, in the airport area. They, uh, they tried to then flow her back into a traffic pattern for an, an, another runway. And, and again, just trying to maneuver the airplane while she's having to look for traffic, the air traffic controllers are talking not only to her, but several other airplanes. They then get her on a final approach for the runway again, except this time she's high and the controller says, hey, you're high, you know, abandon the approach. And we're going to talk about that particular issue uh, in a few minutes. But so she abandons that approach as they vector her around to come back to another runway and sequence her in. Of course, she's, she's having to cross the path of landing traffic. So she's been told, we want you to fly behind this approaching airplane going into runway four, maneuver, line up on this particular runway. That all of that maneuvering and all of that discussion and all of those communications occurred over a 20 minute period. And you could tell if you listen to the actual ATC tape that there was a level of frustration and confusion by this young lady as she is trying to accommodate the, the controller's instructions. When that all happened, John, 
when she's trying to, you know, follow the instructions and she is, she is sounding confused. Uh, again, she's single pilot. We don't know if she's trying to reprogram, you know, any kind of automation in there, if she's trying to use the autopilot or whatever. In that kind of environment where you're getting changes, you know, rapidly and, and so often, you can't use the automation. You got to fly raw data. You got to be a pilot. You got to do the maneuvering. Um, you, your head's on a swivel. You're trying to process. You're trying to an anticipate. And all of these things uh, probably became very overwhelming to the very point where she got so focused on trying to handle what the controllers were telling her, trying to line up. She's, she, it's obvious that she was looking at some of the automation because she did make a comment about the fact that she didn't think she was lined up for the runway that they wanted her to land on. So she was probably looking at uh, the PFD or the MFD in her airplane. Uh, nonetheless, um, she failed to monitor her airspeed and the airspeed got dangerously low to the point where she ended up stalling the aircraft. And that particular um, event that took place after she stalled the airplane, that is the uncontrolled descent, she's flying at a low altitude. It was too low to pull the parachute. Um, the, the latter part of the flight, the uncontrolled part, was captured on a security video of an ACE hardware parking lot. And you can tell, John, from this video that the aircraft didn't have a lot of horizontal movement. It was all vertical. And so it was, uh, you know, very steep nose low, slightly left wing low attitude when the airplane came crashing down on a parked car in a parking lot. You know, it's, it's, uh, it really is a tragedy when you think about this. The pre-planning, which, you know, I hop on pre-planning all the time. So you're coming from uh, home location or anywhere and you're heading into, into an airport that's known for its traffic congestion. It's known for being squeezed in between sometimes SpaceX, often uh, virtually every day between uh, Bush International, and you've got uh, several GA airports around there. In fact, the only other airport I can think of that's just as constrained is Washington National mm -hmm. with Baltimore and with Dulles and with uh, several GA airports surrounding essentially Washington. It's those, those locations are a challenge. And if you're not familiar with them, if you haven't flown in there many times before, I mean, it's really not the wisest decision to go at it alone. I mean, really, she probably could have benefited greatly if she had another pilot in the cockpit that could have handled the radios and helped with, with uh, decision-making until she got herself familiar with flying into that airport in congested uh, time frames, you know, and probably wanted to get into that airport because it was convenient to wherever they were going. But uh, sometimes landing a little further out is the safest thing to do. And you would discover that if you did a good pre-flight analysis. Exactly. And, 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 you know, a couple other facts with this case, John, um, as the NTSB pointed out in, um, in their report, she only had about 330 plus hours, 300 of them were in the SR-20. So, you know, you look at the fact that, okay, she's relatively experienced in the SR-20 as far as operating the airplane. 
but it it she uh, apparently was doing a lot of her flying in Oklahoma. It's wide open spaces, not many Class B air uh, airports to go into that have a high traffic flow. So that could be, uh, of course, a uh, a factor in this. And then they found some drugs in her system. Uh, two of them were over the counter. One of them was prescription. And as the board described, um, that particular uh, drug that they did find has not only a mental but physical impairment component to it. Now, they didn't take it any further than that. They just mentioned that they found it in the drug screen. If it was me doing an acts investigation like this, and, and I've done this in the past, both with alcohol and drugs, um, you get a toxicologist involved to see if in fact, whatever that specimen number was, is, you know, was this drug recently taken? So you have these impairing effects, or is this basically beyond the half-life and this is the tailing end of it? Because that's really critical because she flew into this um, high traffic area. It was confusing. She's trying to process a lot of information. And if this drug um, with its mental uh, impairment type uh, capabilities is, is inca incapacitating her from processing quickly the information she needs, then that too is a major factor in how, she, how come she got confused or why she was having such a, a problem trying to accommodate uh, controller instruction. Now, I won't put it all on her because the controllers were fast and furious and the NTSB, in fact, uh, tagged them in their probable cause for that very thing. They gave her a lot of confusing instructions. They, they maneuvered her around. At some point, John, as the pilot in command, with that authority of pilot in command, it's like, you got to say, whoa, I cannot do this anymore. You got to give me something else. You got to get me out of here. You got to give me another option, but I can't continue this. And you really need to exercise that authority because the more they gave her, the further behind, not only did she get in trying to maneuver, but of course, in flying the airplane. We've seen that over and over again, even in airliners where pilots just uh, something in the culture just won't say unable. They'll just try to follow the, the instructions from air traffic control, even when they know they're not the right instructions that they should be following. And yeah. we discovered uh, when we first got FOQA, I remember this well, when we first uh, started reviewing the, the uh, quick access recorders on commercial airplanes, one of the things that popped up relatively quickly was a certain approach. Uh, I think it was from the Southeast, I forget that part, but uh, into San Francisco where the air traffic controllers were having pilots do uh, crazy gyrations in close, uh, actually contributing to unstable approaches and pilots were doing it. And nobody ever said unable, unable, unable. So- And, and uh, I think that's a, a key word you bring up, John, is unable. And that has to be added to every pilot's vocabulary and not afraid to use it. It's kind of like we've talked about in the past, the word emergency. There are a lot of, a lot of pilots that are fearful to declare an emergency because it connotes the fact that if they say, you know, emergency, mayday, you know, I want priority handling, um, all of a sudden now they're going to have the feds breathing down their neck, especially when you have like a VFR pilot getting into IMC conditions. 
utilize that service, you can always answer questions later. But one of the things that with, with the FAA is that if you've exercised good judgment and you declared the emergency, you got the assistance and you were able to successfully land the aircraft, they're not gonna knock you for exercising that, that privilege and, and really um, you know, that very subjective thing uh, as the pilot in command. Why? Because you were utilizing another tool. Yes, you inadvertently got into IMC and that's a whole different issue, but you're not gonna be criticized. And so I think that pilots shouldn't shy away from you know, saying, look, I'm not able to do that. This is, I mean, I've been spinning around here in circles. And when you look at the radar plot that we'll have on our website, when you look at the radar plot, you can see they had her spinning in circles. She was flying all over the, um, you know, the airport area, um, trying to follow these controller instructions. And one of the points that, uh, that I brought out a little earlier, and that was the air traffic controller had waved her off of one of her approaches because he told her that she was too high. Well, wait a minute here. I'm the pilot in command. I can determine whether or not I'm too high on this approach to land on that piece of pavement. And given the fact that she was landing on a wrong runway, she's in an SR-20, you pull the power, you dump the flaps, she can get that airplane down, you got 10,000 plus feet of runway, you can land a Cirrus. It may not be in the first third, but she could put that airplane down well ahead of the, the traffic that was following her and, uh, and complete that, that landing successfully. So for the controller to call the approach off because she was too high, I could see it if that was a retractable landing gear airplane and the gear wasn't down, okay, it waves you off. But of course, this is a fixed gear airplane and for him to look out the window and go, you know, I think you're too high. Well, you're not flying the airplane. And, and again, uh, the NTSB didn't come out and directly say that, but they did in their probable cause cite the confusing instructions um, and, and all the, uh, the maneuvering that they, they made this pilot do as a contributing factor to the accident. But unfortunately, as we see all too often, she, you know, she got overwhelmed, she got zoned in on one particular aspect of, uh, of trying to fly the aircraft and she failed to monitor her airspeed to the point where it got into the stall regime and when that airplane, you know, stalls at a low altitude, um, there's a high probability you aren't going to recover. And that's exactly what happened to this young lady and her two passengers. When he told me she's high, she should have just acknowledged it, you know, and, and let him know that she was aware of it. And, you know, it was okay. But again, it's all part of free planning and in this particular case another pilot in the cockpit even if he wasn't uh, rated in that airplane just to help with the workload would have made all the difference in the world so it's really uh, it's real it's like all of these they were real tragedies yeah well you you know and you bring it up at the end of every show john and and this one is a i think a perfect textbook example of doing some pre-planning before you ever get to the airport and that is if you've never been into an airport like this, you really should study it. Uh, the internet is a great tool now. You can actually pull up videos. You can listen to air traffic control communications. Uh, you can do a lot of pre-planning and actually pre-flighting. That is, there are enough simulators, especially for the Cirrus, where you can actually plan the flight uh, before you actually take the flight and, and really get 
that mental model built in your head and create not only the plan A, which is to go to destination, in this case, it was Houston Hobby, but then you know, look at what's plan B and C. That is, you had five airports within five miles of Houston Hobby that were more accommodating to general aviation aircraft. Um, you didn't have to worry about trying to be funneled in between two, two fast moving jets. So again, you gotta use a little bit of logic and like you brought up earlier, okay, so Houston Hobby may have been a little closer to their ultimate destination of where they were going after they got out of the airplane. The fact is, is that, you know, there's hooks and a number of other airports that, okay, it's maybe 10 minutes longer, 15 minutes longer to drive, but you're going into an airport that doesn't require you to be thinking, you know, 25 miles ahead of the airplane constantly over and over and over again, if you're not used to doing that kind of maneuvering and thinking and, and actually, you know, exercising those pilot skills. Um, because in this case, she's VFR. If she's IFR, it's a little different, but she wasn't IFR rated. So she wasn't going to be uh, going in there on an IFR flight plan and sequenced on the approach and things like that. I'm just, as you were talking, I was thinking about my flying and trying to get into an airport that's bringing uh, 60 or more aircraft an hour in and out. And uh, boy, that's, that's a tough environment. That is difficult for a pilot who's not familiar with it to, to handle that radio traffic and fly the airplane, keep their, keep their mind into flying while somebody else um, uh, would be better suited to keep their mind into the instructions. So yeah. it's definitely pre-planning uh, played a major role in this accident to my thinking. Yeah, and, and again, we see this in various forms. And that's why we constantly preach it at the end of the show about pre-planning. That is making sure that you have this flight and even a, a local flight, you know, a lot of, a lot of pilots take for granted that, well, you know what, I'm only going to fly in the local area. I may go shoot a landing over at another airport. That's only 20, 25 miles away. Those kinds of flights require a little bit of pre-planning as well, because you take off and you intend to go to an airport 25, 30 miles away and all of a sudden you get there and you failed to check and see if there were notams about the runway that you were gonna land on being closed. Next thing you know, on final approach, <laughs> you see that uh, either there's uh, machinery on there, there's a big red or a big X, um, you know, lights on the runway, things like that. You, you don't wanna get those surprises on final approach. And, and if you do a little bit of homework before you go, and, you know, I've done it here. I look at my iPad because I use ForeFlight. I look and I just scroll through the notams for the local airports just to see what's going on. Yeah, you're going to have taxiway construction and all that kind of stuff. I'm looking for the major stuff. I'm looking for a TFR that's going up. I'm looking for any kind of runway closures and that kind of stuff. Because if I'm going to go bounce up to Greeley, Colorado, where they got a nice restaurant, um, and I'm going to bounce up there. Yeah, they have multiple runways, but the primary runway is the long runway. And I want to go there. And if I find, oh, oh, I'm glad I read that notum because that runway is closed. Is my airplane that I'm flying that particular day capable of landing on these shorter runways, um, especially given uh, the wind conditions and things like that? So it's in the best interest of all pilots who, uh, who are going to go into an airport, um, you know, especially one that 
is a is an environment that they've never been exposed to or an airport they've never been into um, to do a lot of good solid pre-planning it takes 15 20 minutes and it's but that's what being a pilot is all about don't leave it to chance yep i don't have time for it don't have time for a good walk around i mean it just i shake my head i shake my head yep well again the i mean if you want to uh learn more about this accident we'll have a link on our website to the Catherine's report. Uh, that website always does a great job pulling the NTSB information down. Of course, you can go to the NTSB website and I would encourage you not only to go into the website, but go to the docket because that's where a lot of the good supporting material is and you can read it. But there are a lot of lessons to be learned. Um, we just touched on a couple of issues, but you'll be able to read as you read the report, you know, other issues that you could benefit from uh, as you apply it to your own flying. So, uh, of course, uh, definitely check that out through our website. We'll make that available to you. John, um, again, these are the types of accidents where we try to dissect them with lessons learned um, without, you know, really getting into a lot of confusing, uh, you know, minute details. And, and again, I think this one exemplifies the point that you always bring up at the end of the show. So with that segue, I am going to leave you with the last word. Everybody, if you're going to go flying, please do a good session of pre-planning. Look at all the mistakes that were made in this flight with planning and don't make them yourself. You know, do a pre-planning session at home, use your computer. You know, if, if you fly in an airplane like a Cirrus, use some of the uh, very good uh, technology that's available to help you with the flight. When you get to the airport, review it again before you go out to the airplane. When you go out to the airplane, do a good pre-flight and please make sure you know what you're looking at. You know, get a mechanic, get your mechanic to come out with you, look at the airplane. I just was reading one about a prop that just came out of uh, maintenance and they found the prop was no good shortly after a hundred hour inspection. So we have a mechanic that didn't know what he was looking at and, and we also have owners uh, that didn't catch it before or after. I mean, don't, let's not forget the owner is the primary responsible person for the airworthiness of the airplane in a general aviation environment. And, you know, you need to know what you own, need to know what you're looking at, and you need to pay attention. And so do a great pre-flight, do a great walk around, and then after you get up in the air, please put your head on a swivel, listen to the radios, and fly safely. To listen or watch more episodes of this show, go to FlightSafetyDetectives.com, the Flight Safety Detectives YouTube channel, or your favorite place to listen to podcasts. To contact John and Greg about the show, send them an email at FlightSafetyDetectives at gmail.com. And remember, for aviation insurance needs, contact Avemco Insurance at avemco.com or give them a call at 888 888- 879-0389. Mention Flight Safety Detectives and receive a 5% discount.
Thanks for listening to the Flight Safety Detectives, and remember to always fly safe.